uh, one of the most important uh, sections within uh, the book of Revelation. And so here we are in chapters 10 and 11. Resigui writes, Revelation 10 is a story of the role John will play in, John's, in God's eschatological drama of redemption. We're going to see a very significant shift in these uh, two chapters, uh, focusing on what we might call new agents of God's salvific plan. Namely, guess what? Us, the church. What role, what direct role do we play in helping to persuade uh, the world to repent and to turn to the worship of the true God? And so we, will, we now encounter an extended interlude running uh, uh, several verses in which uh, we will uh, encounter some very interesting things. We shall encounter um, what some have called a, uh, an extended space. John is going to take a, an extended time out to inform both John himself, the writer of this, this apocalypse, and his church about their special calling and mission in the end time. So Resigui writes, and I quote, the embedded narrative of 10.1 through 11.14 opens up a space within the storyline to assign a crucial role to the prophet and to the church in the in-between times. The pause is intentional. By, this, by the way, this is one of my favorite quotes in his book. The fits and starts are part of life's restless rhythms in between Jesus' death and resurrection and his coming at the end. Just when the end seems to be around the corner, John pauses and readers are reminded of their role in the story of Jesus' messianic rescue. Do you want to know why sometimes it seems so uncomfortable living in the time that we live? Because we're living in the in-between, the, what scholars call the now but not yet. We're there but we're not. And we live in a time in which evil still has its sway in the earth, and yet God has imposed the future to some degree into the present time. So we're living in this mixed time where God does, God does miracles and does supernatural things, and yet people still die. Death is still among us. Pain and terrible things still happen. So we're in this, we live in this almost hybrid time where good things and bad things happen. This book is, is preparing us for how God brings life as we know it to its final period, or we might even say an exclamation point, preparing for his future reign in which evil will be completely abolished. So we live in the time in between. And so we first encounter what I call the mighty special angel, it's a special angel, and it's a mighty angel. Very unusual angel. We've, angel. we've already met a number of different types, varieties, kinds, ordinary angels, angels with special assignments. This angel has a number of special features that reflect the Son of Man and the one on the throne. So, it's, so this angel must be very close to God, must be one of his personal assistants, uh, shares a lot of his attributes and so forth. Uh, 
this particular um, angel is clothed with a cloud. And, and one scholar points out, almost it reminds us, it's reminiscent of the uh, glory cloud that led the children of Israel across the, the wilderness, the, the cloud that was a cloud by day and a flame, a pillar of flame by night, where, uh, where's a rainbow uh, like a hat, is, uh, has a face like the sun, feet like pillars, straddles, this is very strange, straddles both sides of creation, both the sea and the land, right? Remember how God created uh, and, and divided uh, these parts of creation back in Genesis chapter 1. Holds a little book. This little book, if you want to uh, broach a, a difficult and subject, uh, read about the identity of this little book. Scholars can't make up their mind. Is this actually representing the book of Revelation itself? Is it simply another installment on God's plan for the future? We're not quite sure what this little book is. But ultimately, it is a message that John will be the instrument of conveying God's plans and purposes for the end. And this angel, by the way, roars like a lion. And so, so we have thus far the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And by and by, we'll be introduced to the seven bowls, which will be poured out. But here we have mysteriously seven thunders which John is prohibited from recording. So we're technically missing a cycle, an entire cycle that we are not informed, uh, and it is still a mystery to this day what these thunders refer to. So when I heard the seven thunders utter their voices, I was about to write and heard a voice from heaven uh, saying to me, and he is forbidden to record the content of these seven thunders. And so we don't know what they are. And the angel swears a solemn oath to seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. Do not write them. And one scholar suggests perhaps because the previous plagues, and I think this is a tantalizingly interesting thought, the previous plagues didn't accomplish repentance, Right? People, some of them became hardened, became worse than they were before. And so this creates space, not for an immediate new bunch of plagues, cycle of judgments to occur, but for us to step in as witnesses, as the people of God, a human, uh, putting a human face, if you will, on God's message. And so the angel swears a solemn oath, there will be no longer a delay, and when the seventh angel sounds, the mystery of God would be finished. Sounds like another end of the book, right? Every time we turn around, you read Revelation, you think this has got to be the end of the book. How can there be anything left? And yet, the book continues on. But something very significant will occur with the seventh angel, which we will uh, talk to. So John is commissioned. I like this. My crew worked, they told me they worked seven hours trying to get this PowerPoint exactly right. Sweet and sour. So John is told to eat a little scroll. It will be sweet to your taste, but bitter 
in your stomach. You shall taste it, it will be sweet, but when you digest this little book that you're to eat, when it gets down to your stomach, it's going to be bitter and sour and unpleasant. You must prophesy again. And this is also very interesting. Not The, the text doesn't say, the, the original text doesn't say too many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings, but literally about many peoples, nations. What's going on here? Oh, wow, there's a guy that ate something sour, I guess. Ho! John's getting some acid reflux there, some indigestion, I guess. Whew, man, moving right along. <laughs> I love that. Rezeguay writes, and he's citing, ironically, a, a, a deceased scholar named Sweet. All who follow the Lamb are commissioned for the task of proclaiming God's salvation to the world. For Christ's victory depends on its earthly completion, on Christians eating the message. And eating God's word is inevitably a sweet and a bitter experience. So as John tastes this scroll, the text is speaking to us that we need to ingest God's word deep into us so that it becomes part, so it's flowing through our arteries and our veins and becomes a part of, of who we are. And then we are thus empowered to preach the message to a dying world. <clears throat> then the, the order is given to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. And so we have a, I think we have someone going to come and measure it. Oh, there he is. All right. So measure the temple. What is that all about? Well, it's interesting when you, and we don't have time to, to delve into the typology of the temple as it's used in the book of Revelation. The temple plays a, a very important role. We discover at the very end of the book that there is no longer any temple, that God himself and the Lamb is the temple, Right? There's no need for a temple. What is a temple? A temple is, a, is essentially a shrine that connects heaven and earth. Well, in the end of the book, what happens? Heaven comes on down and lands on earth, the new Jerusalem. There's no need for a shrine to, to contain God or to keep people out of there who shouldn't be in there, who are unholy. God will be, we will be in God's immediate presence. He's told to measure the, the temple, the altar. We've, the altar plays an important role. But he says, do not measure the outside Gentile court. And it's interesting, later on in the book in 2215, uh, we're informed that outside are the dogs, which of course uh, was a very derogatory term often used of Gentiles. What does this mean? That Gentiles aren't going to be in the church? Absolutely not. You have to uh, uh, ignore a huge part of the New Testament and the Old to think that God, that only uh, Jews are going to be saved. But the, point, but the point is, God is going to delineate the space in which his people will dwell. And all those who are unholy will not be permitted, ultimately, to enter into, that, uh, into those precincts. By the way, you might remember an his, important historical event, the abomination of desolation, when Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epiphanes IV, um, goes into the Jewish temple and desecrates it and they burn a, a swine uh, uh, to a pagan god. 
God is ultimately going to make a, make this is going to delineate space where those who are unholy cannot get inside His sacred presence. So then we come to the two witnesses, and I think someone asked me about these two witnesses uh, in our first session. The two witnesses. He says, I will give power to my two witnesses. So God is going to empower these individuals, which I'll just let the cat out of the bag. I think they, are re they represent the church, right? They represent uh, God's people empowered to witness in the end times. He says, they will prophesy clothed in sackcloth, which indicates a state of, of mourning and repentance. He says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God. Now, wh where is that coming from? Well, if you look in Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet asks, what are these? When he sees two olive trees and two lampstands, and the angel explains, what? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We need God's supernatural empowerment to be able to witness and do what? Signs and wonders in the last days. Who are these two witnesses like? What kind of, uh, what kind of, of uh, empowerment do they have? Well, let's take a look. They are granted Moses and Elijah-like powers. Fire comes out of their, their mooch. I tell you what, i got to fire my, one of my PowerPoint crew people again. <laughs> my second blooper of the evening. <laughs> Man, it's supposed to be mustache, I don't know. Power to shut up heaven from rain. Okay, so Elijah, remember that he called down fire from heaven on the entourage that was sent by the king to take him into custody. And he prayed and, and the heavens were shut up and there was no rain and famine for, and, 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 and ensuing famine for a long time. They were able to turn water into blood and strike the earth with plagues. That sounds very Moses-ish, right? How many would like those kind of powers those kind of giftings to be upon you as you witness in these end times. Is anyone here? Let's just be, be frank. You kind of get nervous when you try to witness to someone. But what if, you, what if, you were, if it wasn't by your own might and your own strength, but it was by God's empowering you, giving you these kind of supernatural giftings to be a powerful witness in the end time? Well, what happens? The, the beast from the abyss murders these two fellows, kills them, and leaves in a it's very disgraceful, uh, a very dishonorable, shameful. He let, they just let their bodies lie and rot on the street for three and a half days. Where have we heard that kind of time before? Or at least something very close to it. How long did Jesus, he was about in the grave about the same amount of time, refers to the great city spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And what do people do? They celebrate and they send gifts. It's like Christmas time. We got rid of those two dudes. We were sick and tired of them telling us 
about Jesus and about our sins and how we needed to repent and all that. So they, they're, they're, good, they're dead and gone until the two resurrect and ascend up into heaven. You see, God's got our back, right? God's got our back. As I said earlier, it's time for the church to stand up in these last days and take courage and be bold, right? To be bold. Look at Daniel and his three friends, what they did in the face of oppression, foreign powers, trying to force them to bow to idolatrous images. So then there's a great earthquake. 7,000 perish, but watch this. Very significant. I think it's essentially the first time this happens in the book of Revelation. But the survivors quote, were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Look what the difference it was made when two people boldly stood up and proclaimed the Christian message, mixed with God sending judgment, and what did it do? It produced evangelism, right? It produced people that were uh, willing to repent. So then we're told the second woe has ended. Then we come to the seventh trumpet, the seventh uh, trumpet is very multifaceted, has, has many, many parts to it. We have an important announcement is given, so that's kind of like church. They sing a song, that's kind of like church. The temple is opened, and then there's another great big storm. What is going on with all of this? Well, let's, let's take a closer look. So what is the announcement the announcement, there's, a, there's loud voices in heaven proclaiming what I like to call kingdom transference. It's the inheritance being passed on. This is, the, this is the ultimate goal of the book, to restore creation and restore uh, God's reign, right, the kingdom of God, all across the created order. And so the loud voices proclaim the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's pretty awesome. God is, going, is reigning forever and ever. This sounds to me like the end. But actually we have several more chapters to go. I mean, doesn't that sound like the end? It's over. It's done. Everyone clap. It's finally happened. God's reigning. And no, there's, we got a long way to go. It sounds to me like a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And in many ways, Revelation is a fleshed out version of Psalm chapter 2. Remember Psalm chapter 2 in which God says, I've set my holy king on, on the mountain and the nations have rebelled and mocked and so forth, but God gets the last laugh. So then we have the 24 elders who show up. We've seen them way back earlier in the book. And before the hearers, this, here's Thomas writing, before the hearers can take in the full implications of the hymn, coming from the great voices of heaven, their attention is directed to figures with, with which they are by now quite familiar, the 24 elders seated upon their thrones before God. And this is what they sing. And they give us a synopsis in many ways, of the book of Revelation. They look back at all that's happened, all that is happening at that point in the narrative, and they're looking forward to what is going to happen in the future. In fact, why don't we, we can even say this together. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. 
And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. A very, that ends in a very uh, almost dark way, a menacing way. But when you think about what uh, sinful humanity and the powers of evil have done to disrupt the beauty of God's creation. Read back in Genesis 1 and Ch Genesis chapter 2 when God put everything into order and now everything is in, in a state of chaos. So now what are we going to see? The inner temple uh, will be opened and the ark will be seen. Now let's think for a moment. The temple, think of the history of the temple from a biblical perspective. Only certain individuals could enter into the temple. And there were uh, particular designated spaces as you made your way closer to the inside of the temple. And of course, ultimately, only the high priest was able once a year to go into the very inner sanctum, the holiest of holies, carrying the blood of a sacrificed lamb to place upon the altar. But now, almost uh, in echoing the, the day that Jesus, uh, rose, uh, Jesus died on the cross, and what happened? The veil tore, obviously not by human hands, and one could then peer into the inner a sanctum. We'll hear again, this will happen uh, at the end. And so, uh, and so Strucken, come back, Struckenbruck, Struckenbruck writes, I quote, since the destruction of the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC, 1 Kings 25, 8 through 10, the tradition had developed that the ark was actually hidden until it would be revealed when God regathers his people from 2 Maccabees and so forth, along with the celebra celebration of reward for the people of God, the unveiling of the temple and ark provides auditory and visionary fulfillment of the promise of protection. So one of the, the last things described here is what? The, op the, the revealing of the ark uh, that will be uh, seen in the inter inner sanctum, which shows that... Uh, Mysteries will be revealed, and, and now we can look into the mystery of God. So now we're going to take a, in our few remaining moments before we open it up for Q&A, a sneak preview of the rest of the book before I spend a little time at the very end of the book of Revelation. So some of the things on the horizon, a woman clothed with the sun, very interesting uh, imagery uh, that is used there that, that very scholars have debated on what it means. Satan is expelled from heaven and his persecution of the woman and her offspring commences next. Finally, the two beasts are revealed. We've all been waiting for the beasts, right? These, these uh, hideous monsters who are now rising up. So it's interesting is Things seem to be wrapping up with God's judgment. He's not going unopposed. And we'll find one by one, the enemies of God will rear their ugly head in opposition to what God is doing. And one by one, in reverse order, they will be destroyed, annihilated, dispatched with. Then we have the lamb and his followers. 
the three announcements of chapter 14. We don't have time to go into all the details. The crops and the grape harvests, and as I've already mentioned coming up, the bold judgment. So there's three central cycles in the book of Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and then finally the bowls. We have the, the, the seven thunders, which were not actually uh, um, disclosed to us. The great whore in her beastly ride, the great fall of Babylon. Uh, by the way, the, the whore in, in, the, in the city of Babylon uh, is a parody. Um, it's interesting to compare a Christ and the dragon and uh, Rome and, and uh, the New Jerusalem and so forth. Uh, everything that the devil does is but a sham and a mockery of the true glory and the prestige and the honor that, that only God uh, holds. Then finally, the celebration is over as all those who profited, the merchants and so forth, by, by becoming rich and they were greedy over the, all the commodities and so forth that were exchanged in, in Babylon. They, they uh, mourn over her, her downfall. Finally, the, the climactic event in the entire book, chapter 19, Christ returns riding on a white stallion, the, uh, a sword of the word coming from his mouth, and he annihilates his enemies. One of the most anticlimactic uh, battles in history. <laughs> it lasts about two seconds. He just shows up, and next thing you know, there's corpses everywhere, and the birds are feeding on him. Satan is bound, thank the Lord. And then we have the millennial reign. If you want to, that's probably the mo the most controversial chapter in the in or section in the entire book, which would take a lot, some time to unpack. Finally, Satan's final rebellion is destroyed. And then we move on. The white throne judgment in chapter 20, in which every, every human being, from uh, the greatest of kings to the least of the paupers, stands before God, and books are opened, and the books are checked to see uh, what their works were. Every single thing that we have ever done, I believe, is recorded in those books except for those things that have been washed and erased by the blood of the Lamb. And a book is checked, a, a list of names, and the Lord checks, they look at the book to see whose name is in the book and whose name is not. Finally, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. He sees a new Jerusalem uh, descending from heaven down and, and it lands on earth. It's a glorious uh, place like no city that's, it, he can't even hardly compare it to any city he knows. It's ginormous, it's glistening. And by the way, it has a street of gold, right? Not streets, it's singular, street of gold. Probably referring to the main thoroughfare through the city. That doesn't mean there aren't other streets and alleys, who knows what, but... It does say the street of gold. Then we have the new Eden. We're getting some deja vu here. Eden. Where are we talking about Eden? What is God doing? It's a new creation. It's a restoration. All things have become new. And even Eden, the, the, the paradise where, where Adam and Eve lived, is now being restored. We find warnings about Christ's soon return. Uh, closing up the book, Christ's message to the church a prohibition, a couple of these uh, items we're going to look at in a little more detail before we close. Prohibition on tampering with the book, and finally, the final salutation. So let's take a look at a few points I'd like to make about the way God has chosen to close 
not only the book of Revelation, but his holy book, his holy word, the Bible. Keep in mind, this is how the entire story of the Bible wraps up. It is the the caboose, the final capstone on God's revelation, written revelation. So the closing of the book completes the Bible's master story. It concludes the defeat of God's enemy, evil and sin. It portrays the overhaul and restoration of the created order. And let me just say this, and understand what I'm saying, it's, Revelation is not just about saving souls, though that's certainly part of it. It's about saving all of creation, right? A creation that's got out of whack, a creation that's come unglued, a creation that's been destroyed by sin. So there's a sense in which at the end of the book of Revelation, we get deja vu back to the beginning, and we return full circle to the beginning of the story, yet the new far exceeds and transcends the old. So it's not simply the old again, but the, old, but the new is described in terms of the old. So a new heaven, a new earth, essentially a new Eden. That's my term, but, that term, but that's what we see at the end. All things have become new, but they still bear a resemblance to the original creation. So it's as though God has rebooted and refreshed and overhauled and restored and made creation even better than the first time around. And it ends like a classic fairy tale. Now, I'm not saying the book of Revelation is a fairy tale, but it ends like a classic fairy tale. The bride and the groom live happily ever after. Amen. Just like a few couples I know here in this church. And happily forever after, right? We all know how a fairy tale ends. The, 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 the groom gets his, uh, you know, Prince Charming gets the, the princess and off they, they get married and off they ride into the horizon. So there's a sense in which one could even say many classic fairy tales fall into the same genre as the book of Revelation. It ends with the bride and the groom uh, now uh, in, their, uh, in their married state. So let's look at the final signing off. How does the book uh, end at the very, very conclusion? An appeal, a final appeal to come and drink of the water of life freely. So after the readers of this book, the hearers of this book have been subjected to chapters and chapters and chapters of crazy, scary stuff, how does the book end? Come, come drink. Come participate. It's, a, it's an invitation to join, if one hasn't already, the ranks of those who have been sealed by God. It also includes a warning against tampering with the book's words, which places the words of this book. Now keep in mind how many people don't even want to read this book. They want to cut it out of the Bible, virtually. It places them on the par, on par with the, the Jewish Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, Investing them, invest them with authority. Now think about Deuteronomy 4, 1, 1 and 2, where um, the same thing is told about the book of Deuteronomy. Don't tamper with it. Don't mess with this book. So here we have the book of Revelation, which is a story about reaching a new promised land. And 
The, uh, the prophet is told, don't allow anyone to change any of the words in the book. This is a holy, authoritative word from God. So there's an assurance that the Lord will soon return and a salutation of goodwill. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I thought this was a horrific, terrible, scary, terrifying book. It is a book that is extending grace to each and every one of us and is telling us to be prepared, to be ready for our Lord's soon return. Amen. Some resources for further study. You might remember on the first day I ran out of time and I had, a, I had thousands and thousands of books I was going to recommend on my PowerPoint, not really. Um, so I've decided to narrow it down. <clears throat> and if you want the longer list, and you don't want, well, I, hopefully your computer won't crash when I send it to you, but <clears throat> here's, the, uh, here's the short list. These are a couple books I found very helpful. Now, anytime I recommend a book, that doesn't mean it's a total endorsement of every viewpoint given in the book. It just means I have found, and in some cases, my students have found this, these particular books to be very, very uh, helpful. Uh, this is one of my favorite books on the book of Revelation. It's by uh, Professor Craig Kester. I took a class with him several years ago. This is, a, uh, I think, a fantastic book. Again, not that we necessarily agree with everything, but, but uh, I found in teaching Revelation classes, my students love this book. And I think it's fairly uh, accessible and approachable. Two others, uh, before I move on. Uh, one is by Rezegue. I've been... Uh, I, I think I found my favorite commentary on Revelation. I, I love this commentary. It is excellent, and I owe a great debt of, da great debt of datitude. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's for you, bro. That's my third. A great debt of gratitude. Did I say it right that time? All right. I'm getting better. To this, to this uh, uh, writer, because he is, does a great job of explaining the book of Revelation from a narrative perspective, dealing with things like plot, uh, character, characterization, point of view, and, and, and so forth, setting. And then an older work on, uh, and this is uh, not T.F. Tenney, it's uh, Merrill Tenney, he's long deceased, Interpreting Revelation. This is a very, very approachable guide, I think a very sensible guide to uh, dealing with many of the basics, the nuts and bolts of understanding the book of Revelation, I, and I um, heartily endorse it. Another book I'd like to recommend is by a colleague and very good friend of mine. Why is everyone laughing? Uh, David Norris, Life, Death, and the End of the World. If you want to get an, an apostolic perspective on, what is an apostolic perspective on, the, on Revelation? I don't know, but anyway... Here's one. <laughs> David Norris, good friend, good colleague. All right. A couple of other uh, guys. Now, these, might, these guys might even be the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. You never know. Um, handbook on the general epistles in Revelation. Yeah. Boy, I was a good-looking guy back then. <laughs> that was before I, I rode with Stephen. Touche. 
This is part of a, a series. I also contributed the one on the Gospels in the series. Readable, approachable, written essentially for a general audience. And, there, and I give you there more of my two cents on the book. Wait a minute. I, I think there's one more slide. Are you in suspense? There is one. I think there's, we're almost at the end. I know the book of Revelation keeps saying it's going to end, and it doesn't. What have we got here? Oh. Whew. Oh, wow. What's, what? Yeah. Well, that's, that's it, folks. That's all she wrote. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, as we have done before, we will do again. If you have any questions, um, we can take those for a brief period of time before we reach our time. And then, of course, Dr. Bricker will be happy. <laughs> Dr. Bricker. Dr. Bricker will be happy to stay afterwards and answer any further questions. And again, I reiterate to you, if you'd like to get other resources from him and so forth, feel free to share your email with him. I do trust him. He will not spam you or any of those other things. Well, actually... Let me rephrase that. Will you promise not to send them so many book recommendations like you do me? <laughs> anyway, if you'd... I'm not ready to make a solemn oath. All right. If you would like to, you can obviously give him your email address, and he'll be happy to also share some of that as well. Any questions that you have? Any questions that we have? I see Sister Jackie. Let me run quickly. Save our time. And he's going to repeat the question for me because I'm very hard of hearing. I just wanted to know the uh, third woe. We did the first what is the third woe? I don't think we've come to it yet. And so that's not a fair question. <laughs> I so don't we know the I first... I mean, honestly, I don't remember what the third woe well, was. You said woe, woe, woe. And you, did you name them? Did you say what they were, woe? Yes, woe one and two, but I, I don't... Woe, woe three is further on in the book. I mean, if someone has a concordance, you can look up the word woe. I think it's probably one of the bowls. Yeah, but I think that's the second. Right, that's the second one. Yeah. Right. And the reason you don't have it yet is it's in the second half of the book. So that's your homework assignment. You have to go and read through the second half of the book <laughs> looking for the third woe. I don't know if that was me. Dr. Brickle's intent. What was me? But you have homework. Another question. Does anyone have any? I see a hand over here. I'm going to skip you because you can always call Jeff anytime you want. <laughs> um, I wondered when it talks about the trumpets mm -hmm. and, the, and the angels sounding, could there be any connection between the last trump in 1 Corinthians 15:52, where it says we'll be changed at the last trump? <sighs> did you, you know, hear that or do I yeah, need to I did repeat it, that. old man? I did hear that. That All was right. very interesting. I've never actually thought of that. Ooh, I like that. You want to make PowerPoints for me? I, I am proud to say that she's on my teaching team, so see that? that <laughs> That's very clever. And I, I think the interesting thing about this too, Dr. Brickle, is that what it does is it highlights um, that Revelation is definitely drawn upon imagery, as we've already seen, and the Old and New Testament, but particularly the Old Testament, are full, it's almost the color palette. If you want to think of Revelation as a painting, then the Old Testament in particular, but all of Scripture, 
uh, is the color palette with which God, through John, paints this picture of his supremacy, of his ultimate victory. And so it's almost like saying, is there orange there or is there yellow there? And the argument would be is even in colors that are not explicitly orange or yellow, there are hints of that as the color palette is mixed. If you think of an artist who takes a color palette and mixes different, yeah, and mixes different colors together to arrive at something else, I think that's imagery there. And I think that's why Dr. Brickle's response is like, ooh, I never saw that before. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Dad. Would I, would I be far off if I summarized the whole thing by saying, if we wanted to summarize it, Jesus rules? Absolutely. You would not be far off. You would be right on. Correct. Yeah, that's what that's essentially what the book is all about. The reign of Christ. Correct. Did you? Well, don't show it to Jackie. She's got to do her homework. Keep it sealed. It's a mystery. Keep it sealed. You are bound. You may not speak. You must keep it sealed. (laughs) Very quickly. Yes, ma'am. I wanted you to know I really appreciated the way the perspective in um, delivering the information on revelation. I've been in classes, you know, you do homiletics and hermeneutics, and it's always, whoa, 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 you, this, this is going to happen. But I really enjoyed the fact that you brought us back to who God is. And in, in, in all essence, it's about him. Right. And I really appreciated that. Well, thank you for Absolutely. that comment. Absolutely. As, as pastor, that was my goal. I really didn't care, and I tried to remind my teaching staff, tried to remind Dr. Brickle as well, I really don't care if you get through the whole book. I don't care if you dive deep on every single point. But if we can get back to understanding what is the point of this book, and the title has told us, the early Christians who gave us that title told us, it's the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. And so I kind of think we're off base when we're spending all of our time talking about everything but Jesus Christ. The Antichrist, the beasts, all of the images. And those images are important, but they're in a picture that's painting the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And um, so that's, if you got that, you can spend a lot of time working out the details as you read back through Revelation again and again, just as we do with the rest of the Bible, do we not? Do we not continue to read it and try to understand and try to learn and try to grow? Well, let's do that the same. Anybody got a closing question? Final question. If not, I'll close her out. All right. Again, would you put your hand together and thank Dr. Brickle for his time?